Thank you, Todd. Hello, friends. Should I not? Can I stand there? All right. Felt a little unsafe. Uh, thank you for being here. I'm grateful to think with you on this topic of authority. Before I do, um, how many of you are Southern Baptist? Okay, that's like most of you. Just in case, does anybody want to know what just, I'm here for the Southern Baptist Convention and we made a little bit of a splash, not entirely a positive one in the news in the last few days. If anybody has questions about that, let's just start right there. I don't, we don't have to if nobody has questions, but it's like, if you do, let's talk about it. Any questions about the Southern Baptist Convention? Yes. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. No, seriously, is this something people saw? Yes. One yes. Well, I'm glad I brought it up then. <laughs> Chris, you've been watching. Do you want to no. explain? Yeah. Oh, oh, you mean? No, I'm not Bible Oh, right, right. You don't mean because of the last couple of days. <laughs> That's what we all just heard you say. Yeah, well, if, if you're a Southern Baptist, as, as I am, I'm a member of, I didn't grow up Southern Baptist, but I joined the Southern Baptist Church in 1996. Uh, we, we, we have a checkered past when it comes to, to race relations. I mean, the, Congre the, the, the convention was started in 1845 so that they could send missionaries who were slaveholders. And they split from the Northern Baptists for that reason. So the, 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 the convention did not start on a good foot to say the least, and a very anti-gospel foot, I would even say. And uh, uh, Southern Baptists have come a long way, made great strides. Um, um, in the 90s, they, they, uh, 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 we, we resolved to apologize for the things past, not just slavery, but also various things of segregation and Jim Crow and so forth. Um, in the last couple of days, there was a, a of, uh, an African-American brother pastor introduced on the floor of the convention, I mean, rather, he, he, uh, he put it to the, the resolutions committee to make a denunciation of the alt-right uh, for its white supremacy. And uh, there was a bunch of language in the resolution that the members of the committee thought was overwrought and kind of reaching too far, and so they decided not to take the resolution and send it to the floor. Well, so then he, in an open member time, just kind of an open mic time, tried to propose it on the floor. Uh, the I, I don't know all the logistics, so I'm kind of going to blunder my way through this. Eventually, it was decided not to be received on the floor, or the whole convention voted against reconsidering the motion that they denied. But here you have to understand, Southern Baptist uh, Convention Parliamentary procedures are extremely complex. There's multiple committees, the Committee on the Business of Order, the Committee on Resolutions, the Committee on Committees, the Committee of this, that, and the other, right? And so when you're out on the floor, 4,000 people, and the leaders come up and say, we're doing this, we're doing that. I mean, on the whole, unless you really are kind of keyed in, you know what's going on, you're going to be like, oh, okay, that sounds good. Okay, so bottom line was, it wasn't able to be reconsidered last night. And so the media exploded. My, my Twitter account exploded so forth, saying, 
Southern Baptists refused to condemn white supremacy of the alt-right. Uh, most of the people in the room had no idea that was going on. Um, a pastor from my church and another former pastor from my church got to the mics and were like, we're sure we want to do this. Or do we not want to say something, anything? And people were like, wait, wait, what's going on? Bottom line, another resolution was proposed and then voted on today and passed, I want to say unanimously, almost unanimously, condemning the white supremacy of the alt-right or any other such political movement. You know, the convention doesn't exist to like condemn parties as such, right? That's, that's, that's where it's kind of tough. Nonetheless, any element of white supremacy is anti-gospel. It is demonic, right? Racism is demonic. It is of the devil. And so any church or congregation of churches clearly want to say we are opposed to that in every way possible and are working to you know, address that. So the, the entire thing made, as I said, a splash. It showed up in the Atlantic, showed up in the Washington Post, showed up in a lot of, lot of places. And in the end, the convention made the, clearly the right decision, figured out what was going wrong, fixed it, addressed it. Nonetheless, a lot of my African-American friends who I was there at the convention with were deeply hurting and struggling through the whole thing. Um, one brother woke up this morning crying. And uh, uh, so it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a costly error, an error that didn't have to be made. Um, and there are things that could have been done to prevent it. Uh, praise God that in the end, again, it was addressed and a unity was affirmed. Gospel unity was affirmed. Uh, nonetheless, it's, it's, a, it's an illustration of how imperfect and fallen and foolish those of us who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone are. Right? And we bear patiently with one another. I mean, what is church membership about? It's about bearing patiently with one another. So Tad sins against me or I sin against Tad, and yet we still love each other in the gospel. And as one person tweeted... Uh, uh, through all this, like the people we have to be most grateful for is the patience our African-American brothers and sisters endured through all of this, kind of staying in the room and being patient through it all. And so just a profound gratitude majority culture should, should I think, possess in response to that. Any questions you want to ask me about that or the convention? I know this is not what you came here to talk about tonight, but you're a Southern Baptist church, or some of you are. And this is what's been going on. Any questions? They massaged the language to make it less about responding to a particular political movement as such and aiming a little bit more at white supremacy as it is in the alt-right and other such things. Does that make sense? So the language was changed slightly. And the original proposer of the amendment said, yes, that's awesome, 100% with that. Let's do that. So everybody was on board. Yeah. I would say, uh, thank you so much for bringing that up. 
Awesome question. Two things. Uh, number one, in fact, no, we're not about that because it, 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 was, it, was, a, it was a consequence of, in some ways, in large part, it was the consequence of confused parliamentary procedures. On the other hand, yes, that's what we're about. We're about being sinful. We are a sinful people. We're also a people who, who, who know that we live by grace alone. And it's Christ's righteousness that commends us and not finally our righteousness. It's not just us, though. It's all humanity. We need a Savior. So, yes, if you come into our house, you know what? You're going to see some sin. I wish you wouldn't, but you're going to see sin if you come into our house. Uh, please know, however, that we are doing our best to repent of that sin and put our trust in Christ and follow after a sinless Savior who was never racist, who died for every tribe, tongue, and language. So. Yeah, good question. No. And I think that's partly why it caught some people off guard. Because it's not like we've done a denunciation of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or, or the alt-left. Right. It's, it's not typical. And that's why I was like, ah. Uh, and I'll, you know, I'll just speak very frankly. When, when, you're, when you're a pastor, that's one of the balances you're always trying to strike. Like on the one hand, like for instance, uh, I want to be utterly clear where the Bible's clear. On the other hand, so pro, I'm pro-life. I think murder is wrong. I think the baby is a murder. I want to be utterly clear. You should not abort. Okay? Because I think the Bible permits me as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a preacher of the gospel to say abortion is wrong. Okay, but what if I say, hey, if, if, uh, if you're all Christians here, you need to support the nomination of, Chief, uh, of Judge Gorsuch. Well, there I'm kind of stepping outside of the bounds of what the Bible has authorized me to do. The Bible's not authorized me as a teacher of the gospel to take a particular political strategy, right? So, I, so when, when we speak as Christians from Scripture, let's speak where Scripture speaks, but not where it doesn't. And a particular political strategy or party alignment is kind of outside of our competence as teachers of, of the Word. So, no, typically the Southern Baptist Convention does not um, align itself with party movements. So, if that is the case, then maybe, again, just, I don't know much about what happened other than the little things I read and then what you just said, but then the pastor, the person who came up and said we should oppose the alt-left, like that was like a bet, like, if he's right, we probably should, or the alt-right, we probably shouldn't, but because that was missing the point, and even in the reform, the way that they changed it, Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a tough question, right? I'm, I'm not sure I can say whether or not he should have done that in the very first place, brought up the whole, the whole, the whole topic to begin with. That, that'd be a good conversation to have. Uh, I do know, though, that having been raised, it should be really clear where the people of God stand. The people of God should not stand with anything that smacks of white supremacy and be clear in their their disavowal, denunciation of white supremacy in any form. I guess that is, just shows like it's like a sad state that we're in that we have to remind people 
Well, as, as one brother, Russ Moore, put it, uh, racism and its various forms is of the devil. It, it, it is satanic. And therefore, the evil one is going to continually try to leverage that to divide humanity, but also certainly divide the people of God. You know? And so, yeah, it's something we're just going to have to continually to make war on, war against. And affirming oneness in Adam, but then even more oneness for those who are believers in Christ. So, yeah, thank you for raising that. Any last questions before we jump in? Yeah. Yeah, just for those of you for whom the, the Southern Baptist Convention seems like a strange, alien, mysterious thing, uh, unlike many denominations, I'll just give you a, a quick one, SBC 101, as fast as I can. It's not a denomination in the sense that it exercises authority over churches. Presbyterians, Anglicans, those denominations, they exercise authority over the church. Right? So they, they own your building, or they, they can tell you who your pastor is going to be, and stuff like that. The Southern Baptist Convention is, is not that. There's no authority exercised between one church and another, or between the whole convention and individual parts of it. It's an association. So we have decided to come together, pool our money, basically for two things, missions and seminary education. Because we realize, you know, that a hundred-person church is going to have a really hard time sending missionaries. They just don't have the budget dollars or sending people to seminary. They don't have the budget dollars to do it. But if that hundred-member church gets together with like 50 other hundred-member churches, well, they can pool their money and send missionaries together. That's what the Southern Baptist Convention is. It basically is a big pot of money of a bunch of churches working together to send missionaries and educate pastors. That's what it is. Um, now, every year for two days we meet the Southern Baptist Convention. And we, first of all, we, we make motions about the ways in which we're going to act. So, okay, these seminaries should do this. The IMB, the International Missionary Board, should do that. We make motions, but then we also make resolutions. Resolutions aren't statement of action. They're statements of what we believe. Resolved, X, Y, and Z. And so every year we get together and we pass some resolutions, often many of which are kind of silly, um, but sometimes some of which are very helpful. Just kind of reminding the churches and in some ways saying to the world, this is what we believe. So uh, a helpful resolution we passed this time was on the gospel and on affirming penal substitutionary atonement. The fact that, uh, that we're all sinners before God, that Christ went to the cross as an act of love to receive the wrath of God for all those who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him. He was our substitute. He paid a penalty, penal substitutionary atonement, atonement at one. Right? So we, we can be reconciled to God because Christ paid the penalty. Either we got to pay it or a substitute's got to pay it. And because there's a lot of critiques, even among Christians, of, of, of penal substitution, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention decided, hey, let's affirm this clearly. I think that was a great thing. Okay, we now are going to talk about authority. And I, I understand, I guess some of you read a book of mine on membership, church membership. We're not going to talk about that directly. What we're going to do is kind of open up the hood 
and look inside. Or we're going to go behind the walls and look at the plumbing. We're going to look at the intel inside. And that's the idea of authority. Authority is behind uh, husband and wife, parents and children, companies, the lines on the road, the traffic signals, the rules of the game, Congress, your, your workplace, a handshake. What's the appropriate way to meet somebody in America? Handshake their hand. France, what is it? It's like, a, it's like a kiss. We have these different rules that give structure to our life together. That's authorities behind everything. And yet, I don't think I need to tell you that authority is not a popular topic in America today, right? We're very individualistic. We're very autonomous. Authority scares us because we see the abuse of authority. So what I'd like to do to, with you tonight is just kind of reflect on this, 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 this thing, this thing called authority, which then informs how we talk about home, family, church, our relationships with one another. I understand that this church, for instance, passed a constitution, elder leadership, congregational rule. Okay, what might make people nervous? Let's, can, can we just think about this concept of authority for a bit? Turn your Bibles. I'm not going to exegete this. Um, I'm going to read it, maybe make a couple of brief observations, but then I'm going to talk about authority more generally. I remember discovering this text a few years ago and just like, this is, <clears throat> this is amazing. Psalm 72 give, just, give the king we're talking about an authority figure here, right? Your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Now we know that he's talking about an ancient Near Eastern king, yet you know, to kind of answers from the back of the book he's talking about someone else, right? A king to come. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Interesting, right? This authority figure doesn't just put, push down, he lifts up. He pushes down the oppressor. He lifts up the needy. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. What does rain do? It nourishes. It brings life. This, this king, it, it's like rain bringing life. May he have, okay, so think, think about the psalmist now. Look, what does he say? May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Oh my goodness, that's not me. I'm like, give me dominion. Let me rule. But there's this, this king he's talking about that's so great, the psalmist is like, give him dominion. The effect of his ruling is so good, I want him to have dominion. What, what this king must be like. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. I mean, again, what, I remember reading this and think, my heart is so self-directed. What would it be for my heart to be like, give him gifts, give him gold? Extend his rule. What kind of king must that be? What must my heart 
do to get there? Four, why do we want his dominion to endure? Why should be gifts be given to him? Four, he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Oh, what is his heart? His heart is for the downtrodden. He wants to lift up the downtrodden, the downcast, and the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. He looks, he looks at those who are downcast and downtrodden and hurt and despised and rejected for this, that, or the other reason. And he says, you are precious in my sight. Your blood is precious to me. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. For him, for him, for him. May there be an abundance of grain in the land and the tops of the mountains may it weave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and people, may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Raise your hand if you've seen the cartoon Beauty and the Beast. You know when the spell is lifted from the castle? And everything beautifies, right? Kind of the, the gargoyles on the castle turn into like monkeys or something. And he's released from the beast. This, this is like the Bible's broken spell moment, right? Tops of the mountains, grain, flourishing, abundance. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people... Be blessed in him, and nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Friend, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. The Jesus that Christians talk about all the time, that's, that's the Jesus we talk about. Because he is so awesome. And he's so amazing. And his rule which we as Christians have submitted our lives to, to become a Christian, you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, his rule creates life. And that's the Jesus we would point you to. We'll talk about that more later if you want. Uh, authority is a wonderful, wonderful, as we see in that psalm, gift. It is also a dangerous, dangerous gift. Seven Questions. I think seven. Yeah, seven. Seven questions. Number one, what is authority? What is authority? Well, it, it goes to the heart of your existence and mine. You and I, fellow human being, were created to rule. Flip back in your Bible to Genesis 1. You and I were created to rule. Genesis 1, verse 26. So he's made all the plants, he's made all the animals, he's made the stars, he's made the sun, and in the crown of creation, the peak of creation, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he had created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over living thing that moves on the earth. Flipping your Bibles real fast to Psalm 8, which is the Bible's own inspired commentary on Genesis 1. Psalm 8. The psalmist is looking back at this passage and just going, Wow. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Look at the last verse, verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What's the psalm about? It's about the majesty of God. Okay, we got that in the bookends. Let's go inside the psalm. What is the majesty of God shown in? Right? Verse 2. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I'm looking at this massive galaxy universe and like, wow, you are amazing, God. You put those in place. How majestic is your name? I look at all of those. Verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned. Royal language, crowned. Him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven. Remember the, our list back there in Genesis 1? The birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've created us. You've crowned us with glory and honor and given us dominion. What in the world? You could do it so much better, God, but you've given us that responsibility. So, friends, you and I were created to rule every homeless person you've seen on the street, every aborted baby, every old, older saint that you've just kind of discarded and forgotten about, the, the, the people at school who you neglect, every human being created in God's image to reflect God and reflect His rule. Like mirrors held up to God. So what are we? We are mirrors who mirror God. That's what we're here for. To rule on God's behalf, showing the universe what God is like. And justice and righteousness and love. That's why we exist. He gave us dominion. He gave us authority. What is authority? Authority is not just power. This, this is, power is like strength. Power is ability. I have the ability to lift this. Authority is the moral right to use power. It is an authorization. That makes sense? So power is just the ability to do something. Authority is the right to do something. So I've been given a driver's license. I have the authority through this license to drive a car. I have the moral right to drive a car. That's, that's the difference you might say between power and authority. Authority is an authorization. Um, and you might say that the authority that is, is a God-given moral right that we have to make choices. And some people have a broad expanse of authority, a king over his kingdom. Some of us have a very narrow expanse of authority, just the thoughts inside of our head. But we've been given the moral right to make choices. And that's what our authority is. And why did God give authority? Well, he gave it to create, to author. Author, iti, authors. God has all authority. What did he do with his authority? He created the world. And then he's put Adam in the garden and Eve in the garden and said, author life. 
have dominion. Subdue, fill, multiply, rule, line up those rose bushes, plant those apple trees. You can eat anything you want. Push back the boundaries of the garden. Create rocket ships. Create skyscrapers. Create music. You author create life. That is what God as a gift has given to all human beings. Right? The ability to author create life. Uh, authority creates, empowers, arranges, organizes, builds, encourages. That's what God did with his authority. He created a world, and that's what he means for everyone made in his image to do. Question one, what is authority? Question two, how is it a good gift? Question two, how is an authority a good gift? Good authority doesn't just work from the top down, it works from the bottom up. Let me be the platform on which you build your life. I'll supply you, fund you, resource you, guide you. Just listen to me. We'll come back to that in a minute. Good authority binds in order to loose. It corrects in order to teach. What's a good teacher do? Corrects to teach. It trims in order to grow. You've seen that with your rose bushes. It disciplines in order to train. It legislates in order to build. It judges in order to redeem. It studies in order to innovate. It's the teacher teaching, the coach coaching, the mother mothering. It's the rules for the game, the lines on the road, a covenant for lovers. Trust me, I'll give you a garden in which you may create a world. Just keep my commandments. I love you. Good authority loves. Good authority gives. Good authority passes out power. Good authority authorizes others. It's not jealous. It doesn't hoard. It passes out. Turn to 2 Samuel Chapter 23. This is, this is, you might say, a short version of Psalm 2072. 2 Samuel 23. These are the last words of David. Well, okay, this must be important. Last words. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Okay, this is really important. I'm setting this one up. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Okay, this is coming from God. The God of Israel spoken. The rock of Israel said to me. Here it is. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You guys can picture it, right? Sun coming down, rain coming down, dew, giving life, giving vibe. When one rules justly in the fear of God, husbands, mothers, bosses, teachers, pastors, when you use your authority justly in the fear of God, What's the room like that you leave behind when you leave? Is it stronger, prettier, built up, 
in good order? Are people strong, equipped, encouraged? Or broken down? Hurt? Weakened? Good authority strengthens and grows. You guys know this. If you've ever had a selfless and loving parent, teacher, employer, coach, pastor, what a glorious gift God has given in making us kings and to rule in his image. Okay, that's why it's a good gift. How is it a dangerous gift? Number three, question number three. Our first parents, we know, of course, did not use authority according to God's commandments. We stopped asking God for moral permission, but relied on the serpent's permission. We looked to him to authorize us to what to do. We didn't look to God to say, hey, you can do this. We listened to the serpent saying, yeah, you can do this. Since he appealed to our desire for supremacy, you can be like God. I want to be supreme. And he promised loosing without binding. He promised growing without trimming. He promised innovation without study. He promised strength without discipline. Hey, you can have it all. You don't need to bind yourself. And what has resulted is a rebellious and cursed world. We use our authority selfishly and so ineffectually. It doesn't work. And since it doesn't work, we become violent. Believing violence will achieve our ends. So Cain gives fruit as an act of worship, but when God doesn't worship Cain in response, hey, I gave you that, God. Why aren't you approving of me? I, I want to be worshipped by you. What does he do? He kills. Sin, in other words, is nothing more or less than humanity's misuse of Authority, Adam's bite, and Pharaoh's killing of the infants are the same thing. One just had a much bigger hammer. Bad authority, husbands, parents, bosses, pastors, bad authority discourages cripples, wilts, sucks dry, dehumanizes, snuffs out, annihilates. Dangerous gift. Children under a bad authority. What's the effect on those children? Do you not see them wilting? You ever had a bad boss? How much that can cripple your life? Bad authority uses, doesn't give. It's political imperialism, it's economic exploitation, it's environmental degradation, it's business monopolization, it's social degradation, it's child abuse. Of course, bad authority doesn't always wear such monstrous faces. Often, bad authority charms, smiles, persuades. It's funny. It borrows truth. It offers empathy. I know how you feel. Yeah, I recognize your troubles. Here's the solution. Listen to me. Keep my commandments. 
That authority takes a good and glorious gift that God has given to humanity and employs it for evil. It's a liar, it's a charlatan, yet it's so very real. Okay, that's question three. Why is authority such a dangerous gift? Question four. What's a good and bad way to respond to the mixed nature of all authority? We as Westerners today, where do we live? We recognize, we look back, and we see the corpse-strewn battlefield of authority's so many misuses we talked about at the beginning of our time tonight, right? In SBC's history. And we could talk about women's rights, and we could talk about all the abuse of husbands, and we could talk about children's rights, and all the abuse of parents, and we could talk about all the things which drive the Western political imagination and what drives it. It's all, off, among other things, awful, horrible uses of authority. And we look at all of that and we conclude authority is bad. Authority is all bad. We must get rid of authority. Um, of course, this can't actually be done since someone always has to make decisions for the group, moral or otherwise, yet one can understand the tactic. Let's just say all authority is bad, let's get rid of it. A world of androgynous gray seems safer. Let's just call everyone special. Let's just give everyone an A. Let's forget the old rules. Let's claim that love doesn't require covenants. Let's revolt against the autocracies of gender. Define yourself. Let's flatten church hierarchies. Let's tear down all the walls. Let's tell people to define themselves, discover themselves, express themselves. Be true to yourself. Even if, ironically, that a culture that does that all tends to end up looking the same. They tend to laugh at the same jokes, shop at the same stores, buy the same clothes, make the same moral judgments, and become pathetically and predictably the same. It is a perspective, however, that recognizes the realities of the fall. So think, authority created. What was that? That was Genesis 1. But then we have authority fallen. What is that? That's, well, that's Genesis 3 to, well, I guess what, Revelation 19, <laughs> right? In some ways. Taking the apple, or, uh, apple, the fruit. Cain killing Abel. So what is our culture to today? Our culture today has very little sense of this and just sees this. And says, it's dangerous, get rid of it. And again, I'm saying, get it. I can sympathize with that. And as Christians, as husbands who affirm like, Husbands should be the head of the household and elders lead in the church and we, we affirm authority. We need to be deeply aware of this. It's fallen. We will use it to harm, to hurt, to exploit. But there's more. Authority redeemed. What's that? Well, we read about it in Psalm 72, didn't we? 
can, is it possible? Can we imagine the possibility that there is such a thing as brightly blooming wives who rejoice in the sunny warmth of their husband's authority? Is that possible? Oh, I love my husband's authority. It makes me strong. Church members who enjoy the elders' authority like dry earth the rain. Again, do you have somebody in your life who is over you and you know when you walk away from them you feel stronger? How do we strike the balance? Number five. Question number five. Well, Christians must recognize the fall in nature of authority, including the potential inside of each of us to abuse it, even with the best of intentions. But to be suspicious of all authority is both naive, somebody's going to rule, and positively harmful. The person that is suspicious of all authority because of very real problems ends up isolated, cynical, not trusting. What is the person in your life who you know who's been the result of abuse of authority? They can't trust anyone. And what happens when you don't trust anyone? You can't enter into meaningful relationship. Because relationship, true relationship, involves vulnerability and transparency and putting yourself potentially in a place you can be harmed. True relationship requires depending on someone else. And so if you've decided, as our culture has, that all authority is bad, relationships are going to break down and we're all going to be cynical and isolated. So that can't be the solution. We've got to be aware of this, but the solution cannot be kill all authority, it's all bad. Because we remember back in creation, no, this is for good, this author's life, this author's communion, this author's relationship, right? God, Adam, Eve in the garden walking together. So I know there's something here. Well, we had one who came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is that? What was Jesus? He was a king. How did that king use his authority? He laid down his life. Came not to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. So authority redeemed, but what is that? That's King Jesus. And those of us who are united to Jesus are learning to walk and follow in his place and use whatever stewardship of authority, whatever we've been given, if it's just the thoughts inside of our head or an entire kingdom or a family or a system at work or a classroom full of students, I'm learning to use my authority like the one who went before me. And I'm united to him. Okay, so what does this look like? How should we lead? Question number six. Question number six. How should we lead? When I was getting married uh, a day or two before the wedding, I went to my pastor, Pastor Mark, and I said, Mark, any final advice for me before I lead? Or before we get married? Shannon and I get married. Uh, we were standing in his kitchen. I will never forget this moment. 
he said, Jonathan, as Shannon's husband, you will be God's number one representative in her life. And you must use your authority for her good. And you must never harm her in any way. And use your authority for your own gain. Because you will be lying about God and how God has loved you and been your king. How do we lead? Well, when people think about leadership, we often think about up is good, top, down is bad. People want to be over others. We want to be the top dog. We want to have the pinnacle of power. They want to move up the ladder, not be under others. The low man on the totem pole, the bottom rung, right? Up is good, down is bad. And scripture talks this way too. So God reigns over the nations. His throne is high and lifted up. Elders have oversight. And that makes sense. You need a view of everything to see, right? The landscape to lead. Yet here's the thing in Scripture. Good leader also means learning how to lead from the bottom up. It means being a foundation, a buttress, a platform for others. You employ your authority to help others to run, to work, to minister. You become the platform on which they live, the stage on which they dance. God is not merely over us. God is under us. He is our rock, giving us a sure place to stand. Leadership is not about running after your dreams. It's about kneeling down and helping others to pursue theirs. You don't just cast vision, you set the stage to help them envision their visions. You're more interested in building up than moving up. You equip, enable, empower. Listen to what the psalmist says after calling God his rock. And who is a rock except our God? This is Psalm 18. The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my, my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. God equips, God secures, God trains, God supports, God makes great. How good is God? So when my three-year-old, I have four girls, 11, 10, 8, 3. When my three-year-old is melting down after a long day, she doesn't need, and just kind of collapsing and melting, and I can't get her into the, you know, she's, she doesn't need a high-pitched, Sophie, response from me. She needs a calm, gentle, here's, here's where the arm goes through the pajamas. Here's how we're going to brush your teeth. Right? Well, okay, where's Dolly? Where's Dolly? She needs me to be strong underneath her. Right? This is where leading <clears throat> top down and bottom up Join. Oversight and foundation building go together. Overseers equip and overseers set boundaries. Walk here, 
not there. Trust these people, not those. This is how to swing the racket, conjugate the verb, flee the sin, invest the money, warn the brother, exegete the text, prepare the sermon, love the church. You explain which ways lead to life and which ways lead to death. You help those under you to focus their eyes so they can see rightly. You work for their success. You pour yourself out. From first to last, you love. In the end, God gives us top-down authority so that we can lead from the bottom up just like someone else who, again, came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Again, friend, if you're, if you, you're here tonight and you're not a, non, you're, you're not a Christian, you don't, understand, you're, you don't call yourself, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, please understand this. The Savior that we Christians talk about, Jesus, is one who came as our king by dying for us to pay that penalty that we deserve. And he calls us to follow after him, but his way of follow, leading us isn't be like, you must do this, you must do that, I'm a slave master. No, it's, 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 it's this, it's this bottom-up giving us what we were created for to run, dance, sing, and joy amidst many trials in this world, but growing in strength and abundance in so many ways. Question seven. Uh, I want to pause there. Question seven gets into some of the nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty. Let me see if there's questions before I get into seven. Any questions of what I've said so far? I will happily stand here awkwardly until somebody asks a question. Yes. What's your name? Michael. Michael. That's a, that's a softball. What's a good and bad way to respond to the mixed nature of authority? I said it's good, point two. It's bad, point three. How do we respond to the mixed nature of it, point four? And I said, well, you've got to be aware of both. You've got you to be, this is real. And it's real inside of you and me, Michael. But this is also possible because we are created for that. But we need a savior to get there and to use it the way it's supposed to be used. Yeah. We lead from, we lead by undergirding, we lead by caring for and equipping. Yes. To, we lead by setting boundaries. Uh huh. Because what's often, what is often done with authority now, well, authority should, and this is done in marriage conversations as well, the way the husband leads is by caring for the wife, period. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, yeah, sure. I mean, the first question is always, what is my goal in this relationship? When what am I here to do in the life of my wife, in the life of my children, in the life of my congregation? Let me give you two concrete illustrations. Illustration one, Mark Dever, my, my pastor, he's there to equip and train up guys. And so he's always giving us opportunities to teach. He's, he's selfless with his pulpit, 
and, 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 and generous in giving other guys the chance to teach and make mistakes when he could do a better job every time. He could bat a thousand relative to all of us under him. But he lets us make our stupid mistakes so that we grow. He lets somebody else be the chairman of the elders, somebody else be the chairman of the members meeting, let somebody else take advantage of this. So he's just constantly giving opportunity. Why? Because his mind is set on building others up. Okay? Now, along the way, see, don't say that. You said that, you're not going to teach again. One guy said something really, 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 really bad in a sermon. He didn't teach again for a while. Okay? So he's setting boundaries. He's giving feedback. He's giving criticism. He's training. Okay, that's illustration one. Illustration two. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking of me as a husband and as a father. I just have to remind myself, I mean, look, look I, I have professional goals. I have ambitions. I do. Things I want to accomplish. I think for good reasons, some for bad reasons, but also good reasons. Okay, it's a mixed bag. <clears throat> and there is a temptation for me as a young husband and young father, and there, be, there was a temptation, to see wife and children in some ways as getting in the way of the things, the godly things that I know I, God has called me to do. And to be frustrated with them as, as kind of hindrances. Just being very transparent with you. I, yeah. And with maturity and grace and growth over time, the Lord has been teaching me, Jonathan, my goal for you is to love them and build them up. That's, that's my ambition, God, for you, Jonathan. To sacrifice some of your big plans and to stop seeing them as hindrances to your agenda what, what opportunities are you affording your wife? How are you giving her opportunities? Are you willing to spend your money on your children and different opportunities for them to grow and get strong? Right? And my selfishness resists that. But that's my job. That's why God has given me my wife and my children. You know? Now, I'm, I'm still in some... You know, obviously, I'm, I'm my, parent, my, my children's authority. So I set rules. Am I answering your question at all? Yeah. Yes, sir. What's your name? John. John. Jack. 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 Isn't Jack short for John? No. Jack is Jack. I like Jack. Well, in some sense, yes. In some sense, no. So, yes, people will resist and hate authority and say it's bad. Uh-huh. Doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Yeah. At the same time, we who are in positions of authority have to recognize it's not just the intent. I need to be conscious of the effect. So it's not enough that I love my children. I have to work to make sure my children feel loved, which means knowing each of them, studying each of them, so that I can not exasperate them. My wife, live with my wife in an understanding way. So the effect does count for something. Any other questions on this? I've given you kind of a, a, a big, as I said, it's going to be a bit abstract. Did I say that? I meant to say that. Kind of, this, is a, this is what authority is. This, this is the wiring inside 
of church membership. This is the wiring inside of families. This is the wiring inside of all those domains of life where somebody has to make decisions. Right? Just trying to think about that more carefully. Any other questions on the nature of authority? Yeah, what's your name? Uh, Brian. Brian, yes, that's right. You introduced yourself. To me early, over there. I'm sorry, did you say you have six questions? No, 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 I said out of the six questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'm to write these down. Like what, what I just said is the hardest for people to grasp onto? I don't know. I've never given this talk before. Well, <laughs> uh, you tell me. You tell me. What was the hardest thing I just said? <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. Whatever. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. All right, question seven. <clears throat> um, uh, the, I guess the question is, are there different kinds of authority? Yes. That's the, the question is, are there different kinds of authority? I'm, I'm going to talk about two different broad ways to think about authority. Um, and then I'll explain it. We have a, something called authority of command. There's something called authority of counsel. Okay? Authority of command, authority of counsel. Two different kinds of authority. Both allow you to make commands. You must do this. Both of them. Make commands. Make commands. Girls, time to go to bed. That's pretty much a daily statement. The difference is With authority of command, you can enforce it. Can't enforce. That's the difference. So Jesus says, in both cases, you have the right to make commands, and I'm going to enforce that on the last day. But here on earth, can't enforce, can't enforce. So. And the Bible gives us explicit words for that enforcement. What is the word the Bible gives us for a parent of young children's authority? How can they enforce it? What's the word? What's the mechanism? Rod. Right? Proverbs. So parents of young children have the authority of the rod. If you do not obey, I can discipline you. 
the state has an enforcement mechanism. What is it? What's the word? Not the, the sword. Paul, Romans 13, he's not giving them the sword for nothing. Okay. What about a husband? Can a husband enforce his will? I don't think so. It's an authority of counsel. There is no biblically given enforcement mechanism. And if the husband begins to enforce, he is abusing his authority. Manipulate, cajole, browbeat, shout, hit, shove, frighten, whatever. That's an abuse of authority. God has not authorized the husband to enforce his will. Congregation. What kind of authority does a whole church have? Command. What's the enforcement mechanism, Chris? Yeah, but what's the single word the Bible gives us in Matthew 16 and 18? The keys of the kingdom are excommunication. Right? So, if I decide to leave my wife for another woman. I'm a member of your church. I leave my wife for another woman. You guys pursue me and say, Jonathan, Christians don't leave their wives. And I say, you know, I'm fine. Thank you very much. And I resist, and you entreat, and you call me back, and I resist, and I, I'm unrepentant in my sin. Finally, Jesus would tell you as a congregation to remove me, to excommunion, remove me from the communion of the church excommunicate, church discipline. He gives the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16 and 18. If you want to double-click on that, happy to go there. We can talk about that further if that would be useful to you. So the church can enforce it, meaning it's, it's against my will. I don't want to be excommunicated, but the church can do it either way. Okay, what about a pastor? What kind of authority does a pastor have? Well, a pastor, can a pastor excommunicate unilaterally in Scripture? You go to the pastor's office, he doesn't like you, says, you're out of the church. Well, if you're an Episcopalian, yes. <laughs> Not in the Bible, though. I'm a Congregationalist. A pastor has an authority of counsel. He cannot enforce it. And he can go to the congregation and say, church, you need to do this because this has happened but a pastor does not have an authority. What is a pastor charged to do? Teach. Persuade. So the fact that husbands and pastors have an authority of counsel that doesn't allow them to enforce it affects, shapes the very nature of the authority they have to exercise. It depends upon wooing. It depends on earning trust. It depends on proving yourself faithful. It depends upon proving to be trustworthy. Right? And my wife can easily and happily follow me when I've demonstrated integrity and trustworthiness 
and my authority has been clearly demonstrated as good, and I teach her, and I encourage her, and I build her up, and I make her strong, and I make it easy for my wife to follow me. Right? And same with an elder or a pastor to a church. So what does Paul say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5? Teach with great patience. Pastors come out every Sunday morning, they teach the same thing, and they teach, and they teach, and they teach, and the congregation stumbles and falls, and the, 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 the shepherd is to come along as with a lamb and be gentle and be tender and just continue to teach and to woo the church and to draw the church towards strength, right? And when husbands and pastors exercise an authority of command as if they can enforce it and make it happen again, that becomes an abusive pastor. That becomes an abusive husband. It's a different kind of authority that a husband and a pastor has than a parent of young children has, or the prince or the parliament or the policeman or the, the state. Because they can enforce it. Okay. Um, and I was I was saying to uh, several of your of your of your church leaders before the, 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 uh, speaking to the transition team, the, the currency for an authority of counsel is trust. A healthy church has trustworthy leaders, and a healthy church has members who can trust. Remember. Remember the person who's been, this is, this is one of the hardest things pastorally, is when a person comes into your church and they've been the, they've been the recipient of much abuse, because there are abusive churches out there. If you ever find yourself in an abusive church, just get out, leave. Don't stay and try to help, just leave. Don't help there with just abusive churches, do not support, okay? So people come in from abusive churches, they don't trust, and you as a pastor are in this situation of like, I want to teach and encourage you to get to a point where you can trust again. Remember, because I said trust is how we, we, we enter into relationship. But it takes a while to earn that trust. So a trustworthy, I'm sorry, a mature godly member learns how to trust and a mature godly elder knows how to be trustworthy. Uh, a mature godly husband is trustworthy. A mature godly wife knows how to trust. And it's, it's, it's a place of harmony and peace. Uh, a friend of mine named Herschel, just the other day we were talking, and he was telling me a story about sitting on an airplane next to a, uh, uh, a an, older, an older lady who is a member of the Baha'i religion. I don't think of Baha'i. It's kind of always get to God sort of religion. And she's a, she's a psychologist. I think she might have been a university professor. And it came out in the conversation that he was a Baptist pastor. And she said, oh, wait a second. Well, she said a couple of things. First she said, she said, that just seems so arrogant to me. And he's like, well, wait, 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 hold on. How, how do you know what you know? She's like, well, I, just, you know, I have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And he's like, okay, I submit to an external authority. You submit to yourself. Which, which of these two is arrogant? That's not the point I'm making. The conversation went on, and um, she's like, aren't, aren't you Baptist pastor? Don't you say all women should submit to all men? No, 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 no. That's not what we teach. We say wives should submit to husbands, not all women to all men. And she says, well, doesn't that like basically cripple your wife? Doesn't that just like belittle her? And he said, if you could come into my home, let me tell you what you would see. Laughter, joy, peace, harmony. 
a husband and a wife and children who have a great time together. We love each other's company. We just love hanging out. And there's encouragement, and there's building up, and there's trust. That's what you would feel if you walked into my home. You would see me laying down my life for her again and again and again. And you would see her trusting me and following me. And you would see fruit and vitality and waving, I don't know if you said this, but just us thinking for a second, Psalm 72, waving fields of grain on top of the mountains. You know, Bible's broken spell moment. And she's like, huh. And he said, well, well what about you? How is, are you married? How, how, is your, how has your view been working out for you? And she started crying. I've been divorced four times. She's kind of like, okay. Which of these works? Which of these is what God has... And he said, could you imagine that there is actually a man who would prove so trustworthy that you could always trust him, who would absolutely devote himself to loving you and making you strong and building you up? And she's like, I don't believe in such a man. And he said, his name is Jesus, and shared the gospel with her. Right. So, yeah, okay. Two different kinds of authority. What's, what's the bottom line for all of us here, friends? I mean, husbands in the room, I want you to ask yourself, what has God given you authority for? How have you been using, if I were to, husbands, if I were to ask your wives, do your wives feel stronger and equipped and built up and encouraged? Is submitting to you for your wives a joy? Do you use your authority in that way, that you make it a joy to follow you? That Yeah, sometimes it's hard, but if your wife stops and thinks long enough, she's like, yeah, it's always, it always works out for my good when I do. Is your, would your wife testify to that? Okay, parents, do you exasperate your children? How would your children feel about your, how do your children feel about your authority? Kind of going to your question, Jack. Yeah, the effect, we need to think about the effect. Over time, are you proving trustworthy in your use of your authority for your children? Uh, those of you who aspire to be elders, you're in seminary? Those of you who aspire to be elders in a church, why do you want to be an elder? What are you hoping to do? Do you, do, you, do you want to do it for the recognition that you'll get? I'm one of the godly ones in here. Or because... I'm in for the money. What's that? I'm in for the money. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Paul calls that a disqualification. Um, or elder, put, uh, aspirees, are you ready to get down on your hands and knees and be the platform on which people stand? You know? Mothers, same question. Teachers, those of you who have assistants, my, uh, uh, I'm editorial director at Nine Marks. Um, Alex Duke is my assistant editor. It is so easy for me to be selfish with Alex. And I have to shepherd my heart and remind myself continually, okay, I am here to train and build up Alex and give him opportunities so that he becomes a better writer, better editor. He's encouraged. He enjoys my company because I'm pouring into him. Right? So those of you who are employers, how are you using your authority? We could go through illustration after illustration. You all know what stations in life you have. You know what offices you hold. This is for you now. 
Just reflect on that. How are you using the authority God has given you? God has crowned you with glory and honor and dominion. How are you using it? Other questions? Any other questions? Yeah. Uh huh. How to respond? Yeah. The argument for papal supremacy relies on Jesus giving the keys to Peter in Matthew 16, as well as subsequent kind of a favoring that Jesus gives to Peter. So the three denials and then the restoration, uh, followed by Peter's seemingly leadership in the Jerusalem church, the fact that he gives kind of a final word at the Council of Jerusalem. So again and again, Peter seems like the first among equals. Then it also relies on the fact that when Judas dies, you know how they replace Judas? We have to find a replacement. Well, if they're going to replace Judas, well, then surely they replace Peter, right? We assume. So Peter's chair must have been filled and then filled and then filled and passed down. And pretty soon we, 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 we think that Peter may have died in Rome so the bishop of Rome, as it's been passed down, must maintain Peter's chair. The bishop of Rome is the pope. There it is. That's the argument. Okay. Couple of problems. Number one, Jesus does give the keys to Peter in chapter 16, but he seems to do it on behalf of the apostles. Number two, he clearly gives the keys to the local church in chapter 18. So Peter back in 16 seems to be representative of Christians. Okay. Also, all those other instances, you're talking about Peter being first among equals. What's the, what's the author's point? Is the author's point in those texts to set up a pope? Is that what the author's trying to do? Your hermeneutic is faulty. He's just not trying. The author Luke and Acts is not trying to do that. You know? So you have a faulty hermeneutic. Uh, number three, um, Judas was replaced, and so Peter must have been replaced. Shalom. We're just speculating now. Died in Rome. It's not in the Bible. Again, we're just speculating. What's really clear in Scripture? What's really clear is the keys of the kingdom are given to the local church. And what's more, in 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 1, Galatians 1, I'm astonished you've turned to a different gospel. If I, or an other angel from heaven, brings to you a different gospel, let him be eternally condemned. In other words, I as an apostle, says Paul, cannot play, I'm an apostle, trump card. You Christians in Galatia, and churches in Galatia, you have authority over me, or an angel, if I bring to you a false gospel. So how does it play out in the early church, in the Bible? The apostles don't have final authority, congregations do. So... Now look, this, this is what I study, so I could do that pretty easily. But like this is my job, is knowing answers to questions like that. But the answers are there. You have to do a little bit of research. You have to build it up, you know. 
So I could go into your field and ask you questions, and it would take me a while to learn that and figure it out, but the answers are clearly there. Yeah. What's your name? John. John. Not Jack. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jack. <laughs> Well, no, that, that's a wise remark insofar as some, some, some battles are unwinnable. Sometimes Jesus says, wipe the dust off your feet and leave town. You know what I mean? It's folly to keep banging your head against a wall. You know, some people are unteachable. So, I mean, the answer to your question depends on what domain we're in. I mean, are we in the workplace and I can fire the guy? Or are we, am I a pastor and I'm in the home and I'm called to be patient and endure? To some extent, the answer to your question, I got, I got a group or a people who's untrustworthy. Well, if it's an employee of mine, you know, two or three strikes, you're out. I'm sorry, we, we have a job to do. Well, you know. I'll say more specifically, so, hey, a rogue Sunday school class. A rogue Sunday school class. You've got a church that's been It feels a little presumptuous putting it like that, but go ahead. <laughs> but yes, of course. But not everybody is. Yeah, sure. Here's the really super unsatisfying answer. It depends. Right? It depends on how long I've been the pastor there. It depends on how much congregational support I have. It depends on how much favor that rogue Sunday school class has. You know, it depends on a series of costs and benefits. Well, I'm there as a pastor. What is my goal? My goal is to help the whole church grow in godliness, right? So if, if I can win this by patience and just long-suffering and, and I don't have to blow the church up or, you know, blow up the Sunday school class, I can just wait them out, then I'm going to do that. You know what I mean? In fact, I would say most of the time, if I can wait it out and just teach my way through it without causing a fight, that's the better way to go. I mean, I think pastors in general should be willing to pick fights, willing to take stands, and willing to say to people, maybe it's time for you to leave. I think you need to be willing to do that, but you, you, you want to do that as seldom as possible, right? Um, so you're a shepherd. Sometimes you've got to wield the stick, or a crook, or whatever. Got to be willing to do that, but on the whole, okay, pastoral work is new covenant work. It's heart work. So it's not, pastoral authority is not about me imposing on you a structure that's contrary to your heart. That's good for nothing. That's how Israel worked. Okay? New Covenant church work is, I'm working for heart growth. So I got this rogue Sunday school class. The first goal isn't just to get them out of the way. The first goal is to teach, persuade, love, be patient with them until their hearts start to change. And New Covenant flowers start to grow on their own through the Spirit and the preaching of the Word. That's the real goal. Now, at the end of the day, though, yes, some people are just intransigent. And they're just unteachable. 
and what I'm going to do with them in any given situation, you know, maybe sometimes I can sideline them, maybe something, because at the, at the end of the day, a good pastor, let me say this, a good pastor always has to have the good of the whole in mind. And if there are certain sheep slash maybe they're wolves, I'm not going to let the wolves take the whole flock hostage. That's not a good shepherd either. So I've got to be willing, if there's some wolves in there, to get them out in some capacity. And again, exactly what I'm going to do in any given situation just depends on all the different pieces on the chessboard. Question back there. What was your name? Roxanne. How, let me make sure I understand your question. Yeah, I mean, great, great, great question. I mean, standing over all, all authority, I'll say all authority on earth, all human authority, is finally relative. There are no absolute human authorities. God alone, His Word, is the final authority. Right? Peter. So they called them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to you, listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. So I don't care who you are. If you're asking me to sin, I'm going to disobey you. Because all human authority is finally relative. Okay? So what we have in this world is many situations. That's a great question. It allows me to clarify something that is probably worth clarifying. What we have in this world is various situations where different authorities overlap. God-given authority overlaps. So let me ask you a question. Who has final authority over the child? The state or the parent? The state? Parent? Yeah, somebody said it depends. Always my favorite answer. If the parent is abusing the child, the state, they better get in there. If the state is saying, you cannot proselytize your child, or if the state, as the state government of Ottawa decided last week, a child expresses a gender orientation or transgender desire and contradicts the parent's religious beliefs, the state has the ability to take, call that abuse and remove the child from the home. Or if the state says, you cannot discipline your children, I say in both of those situations, the parent should say, forget you. God has given me authority over this child to train them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Right? So in that situation, I'd say the parent has the final authority. Right? So, so with a child, you know, the, the, the state has some and the parent has some and there's going to be some overlap there. And, and wisdom, God give us wisdom, 
Wisdom is trying to figure out what situation are we in right now, in any given moment, knowing that the only final authority is King Jesus, and on the last day, I'm going to give an account for whether or not I disobeyed the state for the sake of protecting my child. Right? Or a pastor. Pastor's given a certain authority over me, and a pastor tells me, Jonathan, godliness means you vote for this candidate. Hmm. Okay, has God authorized the government or the pastor to tell me which candidate to vote for? Or you must go to this dentist or this doctor. You must marry this girl. You must not marry this girl. I mean, okay, well, hold on. Has God authorized you, pastor, to, give, to, to exercise your authority over these kinds of decisions? I'm going to give an account to King Jesus on the last day. Is that a legitimate use of authority by the pastor? God, give me wisdom for discerning those situations. See, what we love is black and white answers, right? We love it to always be clear. Who do I obey? Who do I not obey? Just make it really clear. Life isn't like that. Life gets us a lot of these gray areas. Why? Because God intends for us to lean finally on him and ask him for the wisdom to figure, is this an occasion in which I say, no, I'm not going to do this, or is this an occasion in which I need to submit? Okay. Does that answer your question? That was an attempt to answer your question. You don't look satisfied. You want to follow up? Yep. Uh huh. I can't. I can't. Couldn't quite hear you there, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So what that means is, I mean, parents should have a very good idea of what, the, what, what authority God has given them to do and not given them to do. And elders should study what the Bible says that God has given them authority to do and not to do. And, the, and governments, and if you're a state legislature or whatever, you should know what authority... So I want to drive in the lanes that God has given me. I don't want to drive outside the lanes. God is in this authority I have, let me drive in the lanes. That means studying what authority has given us. Recognizing at times it's going to be hard to discern. And we ask for counselor. Talk to the elders of your church. Talk to the pastors. Yeah. So if, if you're somebody who's maybe under an authority of counsel, huh? and you don't have trust in that authority, yep. Well, the problem is either you or the authority. And it's tough to know, isn't it? It may be that you have a harder heart and you're self-deceived than you realize. And it may be that they're perfectly trustworthy and the problem is you. Or it may be that they are genuinely untrustworthy, in which case you should leave. Because an untrustworthy authority does not build up. Right? And that's, that's the dilemma. What's that? Husband-wife? Time to leave. Yeah, uh, I mean, First Peter three. Wives with uh, ungodly, unchristian husbands are commanded to win their husbands by the examples of their wives. Uh, we could talk to anybody in here with a bad boss, 
and financially you just can't leave your job. There are times in life when the Lord places us in situations in which we're constrained to stay, even though the authority over us is not a good authority. Now let me be clear, personally, not all Christians agree with me, I personally believe that if uh, 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 abuse is grounds for divorce. Okay, I, I want to be careful here because that may not be Chuck's position. His brother's not sure. It may not be your pastor's position. So I, I want to speak tentatively here, but I, I, think, I, think, I think if a man is, is, sometimes it's the other way. Ordinarily, it's the man. If a man is, is, is physically, sexually, and perhaps in rare circumstances or really tough, emotionally abusive, such that a, a, a wife cannot live in that home without harm for her own person. It's, it's what I would understand to be a forced abandonment. And I, I would understand Scripture to give her grounds for divorce. Okay? But let's, let's, let's turn down the volume and make it just more, he's kind of annoying or I don't know. Yeah, you can live with them. It's just, it's hard. Talk to my wife. Um, yeah, then it's just, it's learning forbearance and patience. You know? Or you and your job. It may, you may have to leave your job. I was, a, I was, I had a boss once who screamed at me. He'd make fun of me. Jonathan, what are you doing back in your office? Are you handling rattlesnakes back there? What? Oh, you know, you born-agains, evangelicals, playing with your rattlesnakes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, all right, Dave, whatever. <laughs> that was like the, that was the, that was like a good day. At least he was being nice, sort of. Oh, those were a miserable couple of years. Miserable years working for that man. I pray for his repentance. Uh, but I, I was stuck there for a while. You know, at times the Lord calls us to bear up under bad authorities. Think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're a slave and you can get your freedom, get it. But remember, finally we're citizens of the kingdom and we're going to be okay no matter what our station, says he. So, hope that's helpful. Yeah. I certainly do. Okay, her answer was a better one than mine, okay? <laughs> trust the Lord. Wife of a tough husband, trust the Lord. That's what, that's what, uh, that's what Peter calls for. In, 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 so they may live without fear. You will not fear what is uh, uh, f fearful. There are fearful things. But if you're going to be like Sarah and not fear what is fearful trust the Lord. I'm not giving you the exact language, but that's bad boss, trust the Lord. He's established that authority for a time, for a season, 
Doesn't mean at some point you've got to leave, but trust the Lord. Thank you for that. Uh, one last illustration. This is one I shared with you guys. It's just in my own life. Why, why this is a topic I've, I've actually spent a lot of time thinking on. And, and Was it Nick? It's going to submit, or was, your, what was his name? Nick. Yeah, that book that you got is all about love and authority. The reason this is something I've thought a lot about is because I, by nature, am a nonconformist. I hate authority. Okay? And as I, as I said to the brothers beforehand, if you put me in a room of Democrats, I'm a Republican. Put me in a room of Republicans, I'm a Democrat. I just, something in me, something in my flesh wants to, like, oppose. Okay? I was a firstborn child. I was rebellious. Um, and the dramatic change in my life, and I think maybe my conversion, though I'm not sure, occurred when a pastor asked the congregation to do something that I thought didn't make sense. But he gave a reasonable explanation and asked us to trust him. And I was prompted by the Holy Spirit and God's grace to say, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to submit. I'm going to follow. It had to do with a, a vote on who the elders were going to be. Um, and he was putting forward recommendations. And I get into the details if you want. But and it was when I finally submitted to him, my pastor, that my life changed dramatically. I went from a full-time contrarian to just a part-time contrarian. I learned to submit to people around me, and amazingly, I began to be being put into positions of leadership. Because as I proved trustworthy and trusting, those over me knew I could be trusted and began to put me into positions of leadership. So as I submitted, I learned to lead. Isn't that interesting? And so I said to your transition team, or some of your transition team beforehand, Never make a man an elder or a pastor if he's not willing to submit to the other pastors. The people you want in positions of leadership are people who know how to submit and follow. Those are the people you can more often than not trust to lead. That makes sense. And it's the path of humility and growth. So when I submitted myself to the, the pastor over me, I got stronger. I opened myself to instruction, to guidance. Think of Proverbs. My son... Listen to my counsel. You know, it's a garland around your neck. Seek it as hidden treasure. It is life. It is, a, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is the tree of life. As you listen, submit to my fatherly wisdom of you. What is the path to life, growth, strength, vitality? It's, it's trusting, trustworthy authorities that God has placed over us. Let me close this in prayer. If you want to talk to me after, if you have more questions, happy to do that.